You are listening to Love Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. What, what I'm proud about is, is we respond to needs and concerns as we see them. Uh, we often don't initiate things, but we, but we respond. But we're really looking for applicants who are not only high performers, but really understand what we're trying to accomplish. And it all goes back to improving population health in the state of Maine. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to Love Maine Radio, show number 253, Medicine, Islands, and Education, airing for the first time on Sunday, July 24, 2016. How do Mainers access medical care? This depends on many factors, including geographic location and the availability of providers. The diversity of geography, from urban settings to offshore islands, presents some interesting challenges in Maine. Today, we speak with several individuals who are rising to this challenge. Scott Planting and Sharon Daly of the Maine Seacoast Mission, and Dr. Peter Bates and India Stewart of the Maine Medical Center Tufts University School of Medicine Medical School Program. Thank you for joining us. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information. Today with us we have two individuals who are doing very interesting work up the coast. We have Scott Planting and Sharon Daly. Scott has been the president of the Maine Seacoast Mission since 2010. During that time, his key accomplishments have included expanding EDGE, the mission's academic and enrichment program serving over 700 Downeast children, establishing a comprehensive family development program to support low-income Washington County families, and organizing a college support program for nearly 100 mission scholarship recipients. Prior to the mission, Scott was a minister for a three-church parish in west-central Maine for 35 years, overseeing a multi-person staff and coordinating a larger parish composed of churches and outreach ministries. Thanks for coming in today, Scott. Thank you for having me. And you brought with you Sharon Daly, who grew up on a farm in Missouri and, after attending nursing school in St. Louis, moved east. She has worked at many various nursing jobs and loved them all. They include pediatrics at Mass General and Boston Children's, home health in Boston and rural Maine, rehab nursing, a doctor's office, hyperbaric chamber, and hospice nursing. Before joining the Maine Seacoast Mission to start the telemedicine and island health program 15 years ago, she lives on Islesboro, Maine, and is married with two grown daughters and one grandchild. Thank you for coming in today. Thank you for asking us. I love the fact that you both have a, a Midwest connection. You both have a St. Louis connection. That doesn't always happen that we have even one person from St. Louis in the studio, never mind two. But you didn't know each other when you were both there at the same time. No. I was in nursing school. and I was in high school growing up. And Scott, you're originally from Long Beach, California. California. So somehow you've kind of worked your way gradually east. Yeah, our family, my dad um, 
you know, post-World War II, moving around, uh, trying to find work, careers, and it was a time when families where people were on the move a lot. And your family, Sharon, wasn't so much on the move. It sounds like you, you were pretty settled. No, they're still where they were. I came to Boston Children's to work and planned on going west and met my husband the first night I was in Boston. So, so somehow I am. it was meant to be. It was. I'm interested in the Maine Seacoast mission because it's been around a long time and it has really needed to evolve. I, th- I think 1905 was when it was founded. Yes, we're 111 years old. And what's really interesting, Lisa, is we do basically the same, same kind of work we did when we began. Um, two brothers on Mount Desert Island founded the mission, um, two ministers, and their primary concern was uh, people living on islands, lighthouses, and in 1905 it was pretty rugged. There were, there were no schools, health facilities, uh, no services at all. So the two brothers, um, this was sort of a period of, of exploration and doing kind of big things. Uh, they bought a 20-foot sloop, the Hope, and started sailing out to islands and um, providing you know, very basic kinds of services, um, you know, providing health care. Uh, Sharon, her work as a nurse is what we've always done. We've always had nurses going out to islands. Um, and it, it's interesting, the islands go west to uh, Monhegan, but we've also included down east Maine, Washington County, the peninsulas that go down. In um, those years were also island, pretty remote communities. So we, we have um, covered basically the same footprint from down east Maine to, to mid-coast for 110 years, doing basically the same thing, obviously modernized with telemedicine and, and sort of state-of-the-art technology but the same very close connection to people, families, communities. That hasn't changed at all. Um, in my uh, six years with the mission, the one thing I've, I've learned is the one thing we have is trust. That's the only thing we have um, to offer is, 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 is trust, and that's been built up over a long time. So it's, it's very powerful to go to an island or a Down East community and talk to people whose parents and grandparents and great-grandparents had a connection with the mission. So, Sharon, when you were growing up in Missouri and going to nursing school and really doing a broad variety of things, did you ever think that you might be doing telemedicine hmm. on the Sunbeam? <laughs> no, no, it certainly wasn't my life plan. But I do think growing up on a farm in the area that I did was very similar to island living because... Farmers and fishermen, you know, one's working on the lands, one's working on the water, but the lifestyle's really similar, and it was a very rural, isolated community. Um, So I do see a lot of similarities, and I think it's helped me in my job. The Seacoast Mission um, is known for, I believe this is the seventh boat that's started with... This is the fifth boat, okay. So starting with the Hope back in the beginning of the last century, and now you're on the Sunbeam. You've become known for um, helping people with their health care, but you also have done a lot with education. You've done a lot with sort of basic human needs. Um, Talk to me a little bit about that, Scott. Um, What what I'm proud about is, is we respond to needs and concerns as we see them. 
uh, we often don't initiate things, but we but we respond. Um, you know, the whole impetus for telemedicine is you have people, you know, farm uh, fishermen living out on Matinicus, thirty miles out to sea, and to get to see a doctor or healthcare just means a lot of travel and days off of work. So we working with them provided this, this sort of state-of-the-art art technology. So everything we do kind of is, is in response to people. Our work in Washington County with, with children is, is again, um, schools were able to offer so much and there was a real concern uh, for kind of the enrichment activities that our after-school program EDGE does. Um, so again, we, we were embraced. We just didn't move into Washington County and say, well, we're gonna provide these things for you. It, it was, again, this, this long century of, of knowing people, knowing concerns, knowing people's strengths, and, and, and responding to them. So that, that's how we, we have, have always grown. It's, it's, uh, if you know Sharon, Sharon is a listener. And what I, I love about our staff, people are listeners. And um, they take a lot of time. They don't, we don't move into things quickly. We, we take a lot of time to ask questions, to uh, kind of, you know, what, what do you think about this? Does this seem right? Um, so we have a very deliberative style of working. Sharon, as a nurse, you have a pretty um, kind of solid understanding that everything that people um, engage in in their lives could possibly have an impact in their health. So it's not just they have a lung infection. It's, it's what they do for work. It's... Um, how they socialize with other people. I mean, there's really so many elements to a person's health. That must be an interesting place for you because you're not just here, let me put a Band-Aid on it. You're, let's find some foundational solution to what's going on. I guess it's what one of the things I really love about my job is, you know, if you're in a doctor's office and you hand somebody a prescription, they go home, you don't know if they've gotten that prescription filled or if they have the money to get that prescription filled. Um, I think my hospice work before this is a lot of what I do now because it's looking at the whole person. And on this job, not only is it the whole person, it's the whole community. Um, so we're very involved in the communities. The crew of the boat is very involved in the communities without being enmeshed, which allows us to come, be sounding boards, maybe offer some suggestions and help, but then we leave. So we're, we're like the safe people. We're the safe part of the community. And I love that, being able to know the patient, their, their uncle, their aunt, their grandparents, their pets, and just the whole thing. Yeah, that lends a lot of important perspective, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, a as a family doctor, I get to hear what one person tells me, unless they bring their children or their grandparents with them, but I get to hear what one person tells me about their health and their perspective on their health. So for you to be able to say, oh, well, I've met your brother or I've met your your friend and you know I, I have the sense that you're part of this greater fabric right. that must be very useful and getting to know people over this length of time and one thing you know I've watched is you see that person that maybe said oh I'm you know I'm pre-diabetic I'm going to do something about it and you see the people that have done something and the changes that's brought forth and then unfortunately the people that haven't so you it's been new for me to really watch the progression of people's health one of my favorite images from the Sunbeam is when we dock um, Sharon and Douglas Cornman, who is the director of outreach and he's a counselor and does provides pastoral care. 
the two of them leave the boat with bean bags full of whatever it is they need. Uh, Sharon will bring medical things, uh, Douglas or, or food. Or puzzles. Or puzzles. <laughs> and they go two by two. And they will visit over the course of a few hours literally every family on the island making house calls. And, and that's how, how they know what's going on uh, on these communities. And you do that you know, time after time after time. It, you know, it, it, it builds up. Uh, kind of a, just a, uh, almost a, a, a sort of a, a, a soil of richness in, in understanding what's going on in the life of the community. I always say I do house calls and truck calls because when you're walking, that's when people, you know, the lobstermen stop with their trucks and pull over and just talk. And, you know, you don't get that if you don't go off the boat. The Sunbeam goes out, from what I understand, a couple times a month for maybe three, day, three four days at a time. Yeah, our normal schedule for telemedicine is pretty much every other week, and we leave on Tuesday morning from Northeast Harbor around 8, and we go Frenchboro, Ilaho, Matinicus. Not always in that order because at Matinicus, um, we can only get in at high tide, so we have to plan all of our visits around the tide. Um, we, tr- we usually spend a night on Ilaho and one on Matinicus, and then we get in sometime Thursday, um, Last Thursday, I think we got in around 10 o'clock because we had a potluck dinner and an event on Frenchboro, so we came in late. And then on the alternate week, we have a lot of special events. Um, we, um, the kiddos who live on these islands, the schools are K through 8, and they go to high school on the mainland. So we will have a middle school retreat, or several during the course of years, to get all the middle schoolers from all the islands and take them to the mainland and kind of introduce them of this is what school's going to be like. It's going to be really different than a class of three. Um, so we do lots of kind of events. Uh, sometimes we use the boat as a taxi cab. Um, we had a photographer, an artist out on uh, Frenchboro, who does lights up uh, objects at night with flashlights. And, and so literally the, the entire Frenchboro community gathered at a dock with flashlights in the dark, in the cold. And we lit up. And it was just then we all went over to the school for a reception. So we do lots of those sort of, you know, just sort of you know, fun things. We bring a steel drum band out. We're bringing a jazz band out from a high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and next week is um, one of the providers I work with, Dr. Deal Schneider, and he's doing a talk on the islands on communication, personal and community communication, which on an island can be difficult. So we do educational things and fun things. How has technology um, enabled you to shift or improve the way that you're able to offer both healthcare but also educational outreach? Um, for the healthcare part, it, it has enabled people to see a primary care physician um, with specialized equipment. So it's it's I think it's the best of both worlds. It's high, you know, the best of technology, and then me is a personal touch, and the boat is a personal touch. So it's the primary care, but it also allows them to have counseling. We do a lot of um, counseling for depression, marriage counseling, drug and alcohol, and that's been a really big use of it. So that's opened up something. And then we, we do things like smoking cessation classes, educational things for the kids, talks on Lyme disease. So as Scott said earlier, we really try to listen to where people's interests are and then provide what it is that 
they would like. So for people who aren't familiar with telemedicine, what, what does telemedicine mean? Um, the simplified version of it, and I don't ever get too complex with the um, IT part of it, is there's a room on the boat with a flat screen TV on, on the wall. Um, people come in to see the provider, and I do just what an office nurse would do. I would take the vital signs, take the history, do that provider's paperwork, fax it to the provider. Then I'm able to call the provider there. It's it's like fancy Skyping, only it's very HIPAA compliant and all of that. So the provider's on the TV and all of our interaction is live. And the easiest example is if the person has a sore throat, earache, and a cough. Um, after the provider talks to the patient, um, they might say to me, we would like to see how their throat looks. So I have something called a gen camera. So I'm able to take, show them the person's throat and actually freeze the image. So it, in some ways it's better than being in the office because it's magnified and he can look at it as long as they want. Um, then if they have an earache, I have an otoscope. So I'm able to show them the inner ear and I have a stethoscope. Um, so if they want to listen to heart and lung sounds. And then after the visit, if the provider said, well, you know, I wonder if they might have strep throat, I can do a, a quick step strep screen. Um, they wanted some lab work. I can draw some labs and store those until we get back into the mainland to do, um, to take it to the hospital for testing. And then getting medication to the islands, I always say the way I get them there is depends on what day of the week it is, what island it is, and what the weather is. But people on islands know how to figure things out, so we work that out. It's usually they can get it that day or the next day. The um, telemedicine system is part of a regional system called the New England Telemedicine Consortium. And that consortium um, links about 320 sites, hospitals, um, all kinds of healthcare facilities, a boat, um, together with very high-speed internet that is, again, HIPAA-protected. Um, so we also have a bridge system, so we can basically connect to anybody in the world. Um, and we occasionally do that with, with, with specialists, and that's sort of the growing side of that. So we could connect with you in, in your office. Um, so it, it, it's a large, very well-functioning system. Last week I was at a, a New England Rural Health Network meeting and um, Wendy Wolf, who was really one, one of the stars in, in, in Health in Maine, uh, she gave us a really nice shout out. And, and I think what delivery of healthcare in rural areas is so complicated. Just you know, docs and providers, especially places where we live, are very few. Um, so having this system um, really provides much more accessibility for people. And what the key to it is not just saying, here, sit in front of a television screen and talk to a doctor, but you sit in front of a television screen and you talk to Sharon. And having a real live human being who can kind of introduce you and say, this is okay, this is not weird, it's safe, you'll be fine. And that you see, Sharon, um, the doctors that we connect with, and again, there are. This is not for everybody, but we deal with some great docs who work on the other end, and they're fabulous people. Uh, Sharon works really hard to try to get them out to the islands at least annually, so the person you see on the TV screen, you can actually meet in real life, and that 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 helps. So the the technology is really important, but also the human side of having Sharon to say. 
it's okay. Uh, or, or show why up. Are, yeah, or why aren't you at your appointment? <laughs> I know where you live. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a re- that's a really strong statement yeah. that you mm-hmm. can actually bring the boat in and you can actually walk to their house and say, hey, what's going on with yeah. you? And I do. And she does. <laughs> and she does. And I've seen this many times. And, you know, fishermen are, you know, th- these are big, strong, um, very active men for the most part. Some women, but most mostly guys. And Sharon is so good to going up to them and saying, I need to check your blood pressure right now, right now. And, and they say, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am. We all say yes, ma'am to Sharon. And, oh, and she really has that, uh, and that's very unusual with these communities to, to have that kind of um, uh, entrance into everybody's lives. So when Sharon tells us all to do something, we, we do it. So really important. But... In a I nice would, way. Yeah, I would say, you know, it's a real honor to be able to be part of people's lives on the islands or anywhere, but, you know. Well, you're describing something that um, is really why many of us went into medicine in the first place. Um, I'm sure it has something to do why with why you went into medicine, and, and that really is that connection with people mm-hmm. and their families and their communities. And it's interesting that the way medicine seems to have been going for a while is kind of is away from that that touch and that connection, and that we're able to do a lot of very high tech stuff. But we, but we somehow there that relationship piece has been, I guess, the importance of it has been downplayed somewhat. Or all of the paperwork and forms and all of that and rules and regulations have gotten in the way of it. And that's one wonderful thing about my job is there's not a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of coordination, but there's not a lot of paperwork. And when I was had left my last job, one form at admission was 36 pages. So this was a great change for me. And your last job? Was doing hospice. And that's a little ironic, isn't it? Yeah. But so this the Medicare the, form was 36 pages. That was one admission form. So at the end of somebody's life, when you are bringing them to a place where they are getting ready to die, you actually have to fill out a 36-page form. Mm-hmm. That seems weird to me. But I guess that's why you're doing this now. Yeah. Yep. Well, and not to say anything bad uh, about Medicare or hospice, because I think it's very complicated, and there's a lot of reasons why things yeah, are right. the way that they are. But it really does it does my heart good, and it makes me feel a little wistful, honestly, that, that you have the kind of access that you do, and Scott, that you have the ability to work within this very collaborative community. And it reminds me a little bit of Life Flight, although the work that they do is more acute, but that they are reaching out into the communities that need um, higher level and emergent care, but they're not waiting for people to come to them. They're going to those people. It, it's interesting. The, the, the Sunbeam years ago was Life Flight, and we were the one who transported people from islands. And um, now our boat, our boat goes nine or ten knots with the wind pushing us. We are really a slow boat, and what lobster boats go at least twice that. Oh, more. So it, it's interesting. Islanders have this sort of uncanny sense when they need, they know when they need to get to the mainland if there's an emergency. And Life Flight provides a lot, lot of that. But they also know whose boats are available to get them to the mainland yeah. at, at 18 knots. So they, it, it, but they do have an uncanny sense that they've learned that you don't wait for things. Uh, you got to move. Yeah. And the one time I had an emergency on the island, life flight couldn't come. And 
that's what we said was, what's the fastest way to get this person off this island? And so they knew right away whose boat was fastest, and that's what we did. Well, it speaks to an interesting self-reliance and an interesting, I think, um, lack of willingness to give up one's own knowledge of surroundings, of boat speeds, of health. And I think that that's the, you know, this great independence that you're describing can actually be, maybe it's not so good if they don't want to come in and get their blood pressure checked, but it can also be really an asset because they're willing to really take responsibility for what needs to happen in some cases. You know, and I've lived in rural Maine for, for 40 years now, and I saw that in the early 70s, um, communities had a lot of that kind of self-reliance, interdependence, um, because they had, they had had to. This is in western Maine and, and now on the coast. Um, and you know, people had you know jobs, families. They they could make a living. Um, there was a quality of life, and uh, sadly, over a long, long time now in, in Maine, a lot of these small towns have lost a lot of that. Jobs have gone away, and and you're probably right. Island communities are probably the last sort of holdout, just because of the way they are and the way the fishing works, of that kind of resilience um, and self-sufficiency. It's a good point. And they pull together really well in bad times, better than good times sometimes. This, what you do is all part of the Maine Seacoast Mission, and you were founded in 1905 with this idea of spiritual, um, I, don't, I don't know, guidance perhaps, but mm-hmm. certainly the idea of a mission. There was a spiritual aspect to it. There's what? still a spiritual aspect yep. to it, but that does not... Um, interfere with the ability to offer care to anybody regardless of their spiritual inclination. Absolutely, and our definition of spirituality is is what we've been talking about is 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 wellness in that whole cluster of words that in- includes health and wholeness and heal. Um, that that's how we 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 work uh, that that entirety that that clusters. And so for us, health is both. You know, a singularity in in your person, but also the well-being of the community that that you're part of, and and we have a strong sense you don't have those apart. Um, you have to be well in yourself, but also that the community itself um, are around you, and and that includes the natural world. All aspects have to sort of work together. So, um, our our sense of spirituality is is very inclusive that way. And I think, you know, everybody that I work with on the boat, we're, we're just, we're, I feel like we're never judgmental. We're, we're very non-judgmental and accepting of wherever that person is and whatever their beliefs are. How many people does it take to run the Sunbeam? There's five. There's a captain, an engineer, a steward who does all of the uh, cooking and greeting and welcoming. Um, and Douglas Corman, who's the, our spiritual person, and he's also has a background in counseling. And how many people does the Maine Seacoast Mission in total uh, employ? Um, we have about 30 full-time people, and with EDGE, the after-school program, we employ a lot of teachers on a part-time, and there's about 80 teachers we, we employ a, on a part-time basis, so a little over 100. And a lot of volunteers. 
I'm sure that people who are listening will be interested in learning more about the Maine Seacoast Mission and about the Sunbeam. Do you have a website they might go to? <laughs> we do. Seacoast Mission, uh, www.seacoastmission.org. So, please. And I've had the good fortune, I think, twice now to go on board the Sunbeam because it seems as if when you're not out with the islands, you actually do some docking at various places and letting people tour. So that's a nice opportunity for people as well. We've been speaking with Scott Planting and with Sharon Daly, who both are with the Maine Seacoast Mission. Um, Scott is the president and Sharon is the head of the telemedicine program. Thanks so much for coming in and talking with us today. Very enjoyable. Thank you. Experienced chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room. Maine seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch Lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit theroomsportland.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is Portland's largest gallery and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting work of contemporary Maine artists, and we also host a series of monthly solo shows in our newly expanded space. The current show schedule includes Eric Hopkins, Matthew Russ, Jane Damon, William Crosby, and Ruth Hamill, to name a few. Please visit our website for complete show details at artcollectormaine.com. It is my great pleasure today to spend time with an individual that I knew from way back when, probably um, more than a decade, and also an individual I've never met before, but I'm really happy to get to know her. The first individual is Dr. Peter Bates, who serves as Maine Medical Center's Senior Vice President of Academic Affairs, Chief Academic Officer, and the Academic Dean for the Maine Medical Center, Tufts University School of Medicine Medical School Program. Thanks for coming in today. My pleasure, thank you. And of course, as one of my former teachers, I have to give you credit because um, a lot of the things that you taught me have been really good for me as a doctor, so thank you for that too. My pleasure. Did you turn out okay? Uh, You'll have to ask my patients. Okay. Well, I'll give you some names, maybe, if HIPAA says it's okay. And then I have with me also India Stewart, who is a Maine track medical student. She is from Harmony, Maine, and graduated from the University of Maine with a biology major, and she hopes to go into OBGYN. Thanks for coming in, India. Thank you for having me. So I'm excited about this because uh, I went through as a medical student with the University of Vermont, and this was sort of the predecessor to Maine Tufts. And I think Maine Tufts has just really done a great job um, generating interest and bringing medical students back and kind of getting them back into the fabric of Maine. What do you think? Well, we we couldn't be happier actually with the success of the program and the quality of the people we attracted, like India, to be medical students here. So, tell me a little bit about the process. Um, I know that um, my son Campbell, he's going to take a year off. He went to the University of Maine, like you did, India, and he's going to go to the Tufts program. So, I had a little bit of an inside view of, of all of that and his interviewing. But if I was a say, if I was a at the University of Maine now, and I wanted to go through this process of interviewing, what does that look like? Well, there's really two avenues. Uh, India took one, Mm -hmm. and there's an opportunity called Early Assurance, where a high-performing student at the end of his or her sophomore year can actually apply to the program and be accepted. Uh, And it's a great opportunity because it allows them to bypass certain standardized 
examinations, which no one enjoys, <laughs> and uh, have a commitment to go to medical school when they complete their undergraduate degree. And then there's the standard regular admissions after four years of college. But we're really looking for applicants who are not only high performers, but really understand what we're trying to accomplish. And it all goes back to improving population health in the state of Maine. India, you told me that Harmony is north of Skowhegan. That is correct. So you have a pretty good sense of what it means to be in the heart of Maine. Mm -hmm. How did that influence your decision to go into medicine? Well, growing up in a really small town, you are sort of given the opportunities to see what is needed when it comes to healthcare. Um, some of the things that is la are lacking and some of the things that need improvement. Um, I was inspired by my father to go into medicine. He told me when I was very young that I had to be a doctor so I could take care of him when he got old. Um, and since that time, I have had that, I've had that drive. It's been what I've known and it's what I plan to do. Um, so I have, I feel like I've been given the opportunity to have an inside look to what a lot of our communities need and that has really guided me in my experience throughout this entire process. So you're going into your fourth year of medical school, yes. your final year, mm -hmm. and you're planning to specialize in obstetrics and gynecology. Yes. And you think that you might bring this specialty back to the state of Maine when you're done your residency program? I feel like right now there is, well, there's going to be a, a large demand for new OBGYNs because we have an older population of physicians right now that are going to be retiring. So there's definitely a need for OBs here. Um, and I've been really given the opportunity to sort of see different aspects of OB in the state of Maine through uh, the midwifery programs and um, the nurse midwives, the doulas, and on top of that, the OBs as well. So I've kind of had this um, really nice experience of seeing all the different aspects of the specialty and how, it, and how it benefits the state of Maine. And so do you have thoughts? Do you think that you might actually come back and practice or is it too early to say? I think there is a very, very good chance that I will be coming back to practice. Um, I would love to have the opportunity to do my residency program here, um, but it's, it's a very competitive field and Maine Medical Center has a very competitive program, so we'll see. This must be music to your ears, Dr. Bates. It really is great. I had a big smile on my face just listening to India right now because she has captured really the both the challenge and the opportunity in her own words, which is really all that we want. You know, we know she's gonna be a great doctor, but I think for her to really have an understanding of what Maine's needs are in her chosen field and think about how she can help make a difference, that, that feels pretty good. I remember when I was a medical student and a resident in the family medicine program at Maine Medical, they really did offer, Maine Medical offers this really great chance to get out there into the communities and everything from um, working with the new Mainers, immigrant population, mm -hmm. to um, the public health population, indigent, homeless. And it really, um, you, get it, you can get it here in Portland, but also you can go out and do things at rural sites. And it seems like that's something that you want the medical students in the Tufts Track program to really have the chance to experience. That's absolutely true. And um, our theme right now is educating for societal needs. And it's difficult to understand those unless you're learning your craft, 
how to be a good physician in the context of where those societal needs are actually most pronounced. So we're really focusing on urban underserved in the city of Portland, and we're focusing on rural underserved in various communities around the state. And uh, India spent nine months of her third year. It's really a signature feature of the program in a clerkship setting in a rural community in the state of Maine. And, and we think that's formative for them to really understand what those careers are like. India, tell me about that. Where did you go? So I had the opportunity to work at Penn Bay Hospital in Rockport. And I was there for nine months. Um, I, a part of the program, one of the, I mean, one of the best aspects of, of our program is that we're able to work one-on-one -on -one with professionals in each of the different rotations, family medicine, surgery, OB, psychiatry, pediatrics, um, and have a one-on-one -on -one relationship directly with the mentors, learning from them, working with them. Um, and Penn Bay gave me the opportunity to not only see what it's like to work in a rural community, in a rural hospital, but also to go out into the community and do home visits with some of the physicians. Um, I have many stories I could tell you about some of the different home visits that I did, but that is an opportunity that you don't necessarily get in a big urban hospital like Tufts. Um, so I feel very fortunate to be able to see that aspect of patient care and that side of, of care. So the first two years of your education as a medical student is spent doing basic science. Yeah, doing in Boston. In Boston. Mm -hmm. So you actually are right in the middle of a big city doing basic science stuff. Right in the middle of Chinatown. <laughs> and, and what is the connection to Maine? How do you maintain that connection over the first two years? So our program always uh, makes sure that, so there's a, there's a group of about 38 of us um, in my class and before we even go down to Tufts we have uh, a like a sort of a team building retreat so we meet all of us we meet each other um, be develop nice relationships with each other and then once we go down to Boston we're in a classroom full of 200 people but we already know 40 of them so that was uh, in and of itself really comforting to already know a group of people. And then throughout the year, um, we have the opportunity to travel back to Maine uh, in, during our second year, and we do something called CAP, um, which is we work with, uh, in a family med practice in the, around the state, so I had the opportunity to be in Portland and um, Scarborough, and we come and visit a mentor each week, or every other week. And, and work with them and um, keep that connection. How is this different, Dr. Bates, uh, or similar to the education you received when you went through, which was it was a few years ago now, wasn't it? Yeah, just a few. Now, you know, in many ways, I think the quality is the same or higher than my experience, and I had a great medical education, but I would really point to the nine-month rural experience India described, which we call the Longitudinal Integrated Clerkship, or LIC. And uh, OB is a good example of that. When I was a medical student taking OB, the currency of your experience was how many deliveries you participated in. And uh, I was at Madigan Army Hospital, and so I was involved in a lot of deliveries. 
but I think in the LIC, there's an opportunity to follow a woman and her family through the entire sequence mm-hmm. of pregnancy and delivery, a very different experience. Everything I learned about prenatal care really came through reading a textbook or getting a lecture and then being witnessing or participating in the delivery, but I think to actually follow a woman through the entire experience or a person with a cancer or any other chronic mm-hmm. illness uh, through the entire duration and understand that person and their needs as well as the more pure medical or scientific aspects. That's very different than what I experienced. And that's really what we're trying to get at here. I think for people like India to be well-rounded physicians and really serve their community, they have to understand and appreciate the people they take care of as well as bring great scientific skills. I know that when I, as a medical student, I spent roughly two and a half years because our preclinical was a year and a half at UVM at the time um, at Maine Med and outside of um, Portland. And one of the things that was really great about that was making connections with the doctors. So then when I went into practice, I then had connections with the doctors in the state. Do you feel like that might be a useful thing for you, India, as you continue to move through this process? Do you mean as far as knowing physicians already here? Yeah. I'm not sure I understand the question. Yeah, the connections that you made when you were up at Penn Bay or connections that you're making now when you're in the Portland area. Oh, yeah. These will be lifelong connections. Um, I have a really great relationship with the OBGYN that I met in Rockport, and she has agreed to talk with me every month throughout my uh, application process into residency and guide me and... Uh, give me really great advice on how to look at different programs. Um, And so I I truly believe that that will be a relationship that I will continue to have for a very long time. Um, And just working with the staff at Maine Medical Center, they have such a love for the program and they really inspire their students to be the best that they are. And um, they have always made it very clear that we can always turn to them if we ever have questions or need help or or anything. You've been doing this how many years now, the Tufts program, Dr. Bates? We admitted our fl- first class in the fall of 2009, and uh, this spring we graduated our fourth class. It's amazing how quickly it's gone. And what are some of the things that you feel like you've learned? Are there surprises that have cropped up for you, or has this been pretty much the what you expected? Well, I think when you do anything new, there's always surprises. And um, they've almost all been really positive, favorable kind of surprises. I think um, we always had a great experience with students from the University of Vermont, like yourself, great students. But many weren't really committed to the state of Maine unless they grew up here or had a love for Maine like you do. Um, So seeing the students who really love the state also come to learn here has been very different. And it's inspiring to work with young people. I think part of the joy of being a faculty member is you not only get to share what you know, but you learn from the people you're you're educating. And uh, it's it for for a very demanding profession right now. I think many of our clinicians, and it's not just doctors. I think nurses, pharmacists, others really enjoy having medical students around and being part of that process. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that's something we've learned. Um, Many of our faculty are excellent teachers. We have several that have won teaching awards, and I think to see Maine Medical Center kind of blossom as an academic health center, be highly regarded in the Tufts community, which is a premier medical school, and seeing that this is something we can do and do very, very well has actually been a really nice 
surprise, perhaps, but uh, definitely a nice outcome. One of the things that I have noticed as my son at the University of Maine went through the process is that they actually started, he started making connections with people who are kind of on the pre-med track mm-hmm. even further back. So he he has a friend who is going to go next year to medical school. He's going to go after taking a gap year, my son is, to medical school. So he actually is already making these connections. Did you have that same experience at the University of Maine? Yes, absolutely. There is somebody there, uh, Chris Ann Blackie, who I want to thank especially for helping me in my search to go to medical school. I was in her office probably once a week my entire first and second year at UMaine and asking her questions she would connect me with students that had already been accepted into the program who gave helpful advice on on what the program's looking for and just overall you know support and and help throughout the process. Um, So she was very much influential in in that for me. I think it's a I think that I'm really glad to hear that that is true and I was also glad to know that my son had a similar experience at the University of Maine and I know that University of the University of Maine system has really upped its game just as you're saying Maine Medical Center has and it's really nice to know that within the state of Maine we have this great high quality education that can be afforded by both private and public institutions. And there's an excitement about it, you know, with the Honors College at the University of Maine and the biology and the biochemistry departments and all the research going on and Maine Medical Center. And it's it's something that um, I think was evolving when I was getting my education, but it's nice to see that it has continued yeah. to move forward. I think the aspirational part about this is a little bit soft and hard to quantify, but, but really important. Um, I believe very strongly there are really highly qualified and talented young people in the state who <clears throat> maybe haven't thought about a higher education or a profession for themselves that um, would be terrific clinicians, doctors, nurses. And it's not all about health care, but it is a big need we have, and I think we actually have the talent right here if we can reach them and help them. Uh, and India is an example of someone who can succeed very, very well, uh, even though she comes from a small community. And, uh, and I think there's a lot of young people in small community who maybe weren't encouraged by their parents or had other tracks in mind if they just had an epiphany. And for many of them, it's a chance to meet a young person like India and say, gee, I think maybe I could be like that. The other part that's been great is we've committed to provide financial support for the students to make sure they're not encumbered by excessive debt when they finish their education. and. I have been really amazed at how generous mean people and foundations and corporations are in supporting this program. We've raised over $30 million, and I think that's been a great feature of the program. $30 million, that's, that's pretty significant. It's been a lot of money. Our goal is $40 million. I, I, when we started, I wasn't sure we'd make it, but I think now we're definitely going to make it, and that's going to make sure the scholarship program ex- exists in perpetuity. It's very important. I think if you're a young person and you really finish medical school with a lot of debt, that tends to affect your choice of residency and if you may want to do primary care in a rural community but perhaps feel you can't afford to do that because of those issues. That's that's a decision we don't want to have graduates face. Well, and I, as a family practice doctor, I know that we are seeing, we have a lot of really great mid-levels who are working with us, right. but we're seeing that there's a huge need for primary care. and 
And I think that you're right. That's that's a big consideration. I mean, I'm still paying off my own medical school loans as my son is getting ready to go to medical school himself. And that to have that be a factor is it's unfor- it's an unfortunate reality, but it's really there. Yeah, it's definitely true and it's played out and there's a whole as India said there's a whole generation of really good primary care physicians and other specialists in our rural communities that are within 5 years of retirement and it's not really clear who's going to succeed them. So it's really the whole package for us, getting high quality applicants, scholarships to diminish the debt impact, the rural education, the experiential part of living in a rural community so you really understand what that life and career is like. Dr. Bates, I know that you were one of the, um, you were the co-founder actually of the South Portland-based Chess Medicine Associates and um, you were doing you were doing clinical care for many, many years. Yep. You had your own patient panel. You told me you just finished doing this a couple of years ago, much to your kind of semi-regret, I think. Right, for sure. What did you learn as a clinician in Maine over that period of time? Well, I learned how terrific people are, and Maine people in particular. I think um, as a young person, I maybe underestimated how important to me it was to form personal relationships with people in the process of delivering health care. When I was young, I was attracted to the critical care environment, and it's very exciting and very scientific, and you can do a lot of good. But uh, over time, I think the the allure of that faded a little bit for me, and uh, what I became interested was in was people I'd seen for decades with uh, chronic illnesses who kind of beat the odds. Uh, they maybe had emphysema, been able to quit smoking discovered a new aspect of their life that was fulfilling through this new kind of view of themselves. And, um, you know, the opportunity to have a relationship with someone like that, provide health care, help them move forward in their lives is a real privilege. So as we talked earlier, when my practice closed, it was really necessary to sort of preserve my time demands, but it was a kind of a heart-wrenching moment, and uh, I really miss those people. India, having myself been a primary care provider within different parts of the state over the years. I know that people who do specialty practices are called to do primary care, and especially in OBGYN, obstetrics and gynecology. What was your experience when you were at um, Penn Bay? Okay, so OBGYN to me really is a primary care specialty with the addition of the surgical aspect of it. So we provide all aspects of women's health in preventative medicine um, through pap smears, breast exams. There are even some aspects of mental health that we touch on, family dynamics. So in in that sense, it's, it's a primary care specialty. And then when when a woman needs to have a surgical procedure, we're able to truly understand them as a patient and a person and then provide provide to them the surgical aspect of what they need as well. Dr. Bates, one final question for you. You've you've now been a- around for a little while. I've been around for a little while too, so and I've seen medicine change quite a bit. I'm a, I'm guessing you've seen medicine change quite a bit. What are some of the good things that you've seen coming out of the changes that we've gone through? Well, I still think it's the greatest career um, that a person could enter. I know many people in my age group tend to sound a little jaded and concerned about day to day, or even longer term concerns, but it's a terrific field, and I think the chance to be 
close to people at the most vulnerable times of their lives uh, and still practice um, a craft that requires a high degree of scientific knowledge and skill is a really unique thing. And that's still here. And in fact, I think a lot of the recent push through the Affordable Care Act and other societal pressures to focus on people and their needs and the quality of their experience in the healthcare system has been really positive. So for many people, there's a lot of changes. The reimbursement systems change. There is excessive documentation. There's a lot of kind of hassles that make the day-to-day -day experience not always that great. But um, I think as a career, it's hard to imagine a better one for a young person right now. Well, it's been really a pleasure to speak with the two of you today. I'm assuming that if one would be listening and is a medical student or a budding medical student or has any interest in this field at all, they can find a, um, a website for them to look at. Would you know what that is, Dr. Bates? Yeah, there's two ways. They can go to the Tufts University website and go into the School of Medicine and find the Main Track program, and they can go to Maine Medical Center and do the same thing. And we definitely want to hear from young people who think they might be interested in health careers. That'd be a great opportunity for us to chat with them. Well, as a, as a former Maine Medical Center resident, I can say that you do offer the highest quality of education. I really learned a lot when I was there. I'm, I, I'm sure, India, you are finding the same thing. And your affiliation with Tufts, it sounds like it's quite wonderful. I can't wait for my own son to experience it. I appreciate the both of you coming in today. We've been speaking with Dr. Peter Bates, who is... Maine Medical Center's Senior Vice President of Academic Affairs, Chief Academic Officer, and the Academic Dean for the Maine Medical Center, Tufts University School of Medicine Medical School Program. And also with India Stewart, who is a Maine track medical student from Harmony, Maine, who graduated from the University of Maine and hopes to go into obstetrics and gynecology. I appreciate you both taking the time out of your very busy schedules to come in and speak with us today. Thank you very much for having us. Thanks for the opportunity. You've been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 253, Medicine, Islands, and Education. Our guests have included Scott Planting, Sharon Daly, Dr. Peter Bates, and India Stewart. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love, Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love, Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Maine Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belayo. I hope that you have enjoyed our Medicine, Islands, and Education show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Berlin City Honda, The Rooms by Harding Lee Smith, Maine Magazine, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Kelly Chase. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasson. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our host's production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com. Here's a clip from our interview with Chris Van Dusen from next week's program. You were inspired to write a book about 
a ship that actually, a, a true ship that actually capsized <laughs> in, in a, I, b- I believe, a large storm that happened off the coast of Maine, mm-hmm. leaving uh, an entire circus and all mm-hmm. the animals in it stranded mm-hmm. and kind of swimming for their lives. But after reading this real story that, that occurred, and I'm not sure exactly when, but in... in 1836. 1836. Yeah. So you, there are times when you take things from reality and you actually make something out yeah. of them. Yeah, and I actually really like to do that. I'm, I'm always searching for the next, like, you know, hidden main story or a little gem that might be fleshed out to a story. Yeah, that's the book you're referring to. It's called The Circus Ship, and it came out in 2009. And um, it's probably my most popular book of all the books I've written and illustrated. A lot of people really, really respond to that book. And you're right. It was I, I read about this, you know, in a magazine about 30 years ago, this story about this shipwreck, and or, or actually a ship caught fire. It caught fire off of uh, Vinyl Haven, and um, it was carrying a full circus. And it was a huge story at the time. I mean, it made headlines all over the all over the world, really, because it was so unusual to have, you know, an elephant swimming in Penobscot Bay. <laughs> so, um, but it was also a real tragic story, and I wasn't sure I was going to be able to turn it into a story that was appropriate for kids. In fact, I have a funny story. I was, uh, I, w- I live in Camden, and um, I. I I was talking. I was walking down the street one day, and I, I ran into a friend of mine, Matt, and he used to, he grew up on. Uh, I think he spent some time on Vinyl Haven, and he said, "What are you working on?" I said, "Well, I'm working on a new book about a shipwreck that happened off the coast of Maine. It's based on a true shipwreck." And he goes, "It's not the Royal Tar, is it? That's the name of the boat that sank." And um, I said, "Yeah, how'd you know?" And he said, "Well, I grew up on Vinyl Haven. That's still part of their things." He said, "How are you going to do that?" And I said, "Well, I've changed it around a lot." So basically, what I did, I just took the idea of a ship carrying a circus sinking off the coast of Maine. And then I sort of sort of approached it like, well, what if instead of, you know, the ship catching fire, what if it, uh, what if the animal swam to an island? And so I sort of, you know, took the basic idea and built a story more appropriate for kids around that. And you have some, you actually have memorized some of the story. Can you, can sure, you sure. share Sure, sure. Let's with see us? if I remember. Yeah. Uh, it starts. Five miles off the coast of Maine and slightly overdue, a circus ship was steaming south in fog as thick as stew. On board were 15 animals who traveled to and fro. The next day it was Boston for another circus show. The captain, Mr. Carrington, was honest and sincere. He thought that they should drop the hook and wait for things to clear. But Mr. Payne, the circus boss, was terribly demanding. He stomped up to the helm where Captain Carrington was standing and screamed, Don't stop! Keep going! I've got a show to do! Just get me down to Boston Town tomorrow, sir, by two. And it goes on from there. <laughs> I love it! And I could just like picture you actually uh, sharing the story with children, and which is something that you do a lot of. You do, I do a lot of school I do. visits. Yeah, I do a lot of school visits, a lot of library visits, and uh, actually, my Mr. Payne voice—I didn't want to blow out your uh, microphone here—but my Mr. Payne voice can get really loud, and the kids in the front row, their hair goes back. But no, it's a, it's really fun. It's a fun. It's a fun read aloud book, and. Um, if you're not familiar with the book, there's uh, like one of the last illustrations is a giant. It's almost like a game within this uh, the book because it's a large double spread illustration, uh, a spread illustration of this town scene, and all the people on the island have hidden the animals from the the mean circus boss who came came back to the island to claim his animals, and kids just love to find all the animals hidden in this one picture. So you were born. From what I understand, on St. Patrick's Day in 1960, in, mm-hmm. the, in Portland, mm-hmm. Maine Med. So, 
did you think when you were younger, obviously not when you were born, that's a little too young, but did you think when you were younger that doing illustration and writing books would, would be in your future? Well, uh, drawing was one of the things I, I always did. And it was, and the more I did it, the real, I realized that it was the one thing I could do with a little bit of success. And so when I was in elementary school, middle school, high school, I mean, I kept drawing while a lot of my friends, you know, didn't think drawing was cool anymore. So I just kept drawing, and I was the guy. Thank you for listening to Love, Maine Radio. We hope you can join us for next week's program. 